Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. Today, I'm really happy to welcome Mandy Ozer. She is the owner of Ardesia Wine Bar in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, where she's highlighting a lot of lesser known and underappreciated people in our industry, including women-led wine brands and wines that give back to charity, sort of unknown wine regions, and unusual or unique winemaking techniques, which are always very exciting and often get left off more traditional wine lists. Mandy was a keynote speaker in the 2022 Women in Wine Leadership Symposium, and she was recently named one of Wine Enthusiasts Future 40. So congratulations, and thank you for coming today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's a huge pleasure and always fun for me to talk to somebody from New York, and it's been a while since I've been back there. So um, great to have you today. And I just want to take a look at some background because I've been reading up. I'm a big stalker, as most of my guests have discovered. And back in the day when you were a student, you were a paralegal. So I want to know what happened, what sparked this move away from law and got you into hospitality because they are very different. They are indeed. They are indeed. Uh, I, you know, always kind of had a foot in restaurants and food and and worked uh, in restaurants from teenage years on through college, always thought it was going to be a side thing. Although it was always a really abiding passion. I always tell the story, I think I was seven or eight, and I asked to have my birthday party at the quote unquote hot new restaurant in town, um, which I think my parents allowed me to do, which was really funny. Oh, nice parents. (laughs) Well, hot is relative in suburban New Jersey. But um, in any event, I was pursuing a career in politics and law. And after graduating from Kenyon College, I landed in DC and worked on Capitol Hill for a few years. And then was sort of making my moves to prepare to go to law school and took a job as a paralegal and just quickly realized it wasn't for me. It was a lot. It was very interesting. And I, I actually learned skills that I use today. Uh, I know my way around an Excel spreadsheet, thanks to the good folks uh, that, that trained me at that law firm. Uh, but it was something, I don't know about the pace. It was, and, and I, you know, I think I really crave sort of seeing my work seeing the result of my work a lot faster than you sometimes do in the world of law. And at that point, I just kind of hit pause. I said, let me let me figure out what I really want to do. And like a lot of mid-20s, people in their mid-20s, you know, a lot of people kind of, if you don't have a really strong path already in place, it's, it's a good time to reassess. And that's 
what I did and um, kept coming back to the idea of food, wine, and, and that world and started searching for something that, that I could do uh, that, that felt like a long-term kind of thing. And that's, you know, when I, when I made the jump, it was about five years out of college. And um, yeah, I can certainly talk more about that aspect as well what I ended up doing. That is amazing. I think, first of all, it, hello to another Ohio girl. Oh. I, I'm from Ohio, but... Uh, oh, nice. I think so many of us have that sort of, you know, especially people who are a little bit older to the wine world rather than newer. That experience of being uh, on one track, I was doing psychology, and then discovering that for whatever reason, as you said, you know, didn't like the speed of it, the results, I was kind of the same... Also, the kind of endless pressure. Um, what I had done was I took a job as the assistant to Eric Repair, who's the chef uh, and owner of Le Bernardin Restaurant in New York. And quite honestly, at the time, I, I barely knew who he was. Uh, it just seemed interesting. I had my family was back in New York. I thought it was a great way to kind of get back closer to them. And, you know, at the time, and then the role grew over the years. I was I was with him. Uh, for almost a decade. And, but it's, it's interesting to me, even in that time, just the people I met kind of in those behind the scenes, professional roles in hospitality, they, they kind of, they kind of grew as, as the interest in chefs and restaurants grew culturally. So I think actually today, if one like myself, were kind of exploring quote unquote, what to do in this industry, there'd be a lot more options, but then it was a lot more just touch and go, uh, build it as you build it as you go. And, and um, yeah, so I think it's interesting how that aspect has evolved and how it might be different today if, if one were declaring that they want to be in hospitality. Absolutely. I, I completely, yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think it's seen as a really legitimate career um, at this point for and having a lot of different branches. You don't have yes. to be a chef or a sommelier, there's a lot. You were you ended up being director of strategic partnerships with Eric, which is, you know, not not sort of a job that people think about when they think about hospitality, but it's an important one. So what were you doing at that point? Back, you know, it was 2003 when I joined Le Bernardin and even just family friends and, you know, no one sort of understood what I was doing. They would say, oh, do you do the ordering for the restaurant? Are you a waiter? And I just knew I you know, I wanted something more, I, I didn't necessarily want to be on the floor full time. And so, yeah, what what it was, was it really grew as the business grew and as Chef Repair's sort of outside work grew with things like cookbooks and developed a TV show. And so even some of my legal training, as it were, came into play because there were a lot of contracts and I would sort of be the first person to throw an eye on those and also, Chef Repair and and all the Bernardin have a, a big emphasis on philanthropy, and so one of the great aspects of the job was was I was sort of the liaison with the organizations he supported outside of the restaurant, and that was extremely rewarding. And so, as the role grew and touched more and more aspects, then you know the title grew as well, and we we kind of created that title. And what's funny is now I see that. You know, when I first sort of ascended to that title, it was it was a bit new, and you know, some people would be like, "What? What do you do? What is that?" But now I see that all the time. <laughs> yeah, is that a made up thing? Exactly. It was, <laughs> <laughs> but now I do. I see it all the time. I saw some um, another celebrity chef. I saw an interface with one of his 
people and, and their title is chief of staff. And I was like, yes, I love this, you know, and, and it, it really is sort of just evolved and, and professionalized. And there are a lot more layers to to these organizations, especially the bigger hospitality groups. But, you know, even at the small ones, the, the functions and the, and the need for, for that support remain. So it's, it's opened a lot, of, a lot of doors for sort of non-floor, non-culinary based roles in, in this world. Yeah. And I, I think it reflects sort of the, as I said, the legitimization of, of hospitality as, as a career and all of the extra things that, that can take place within you know, that realm. As you said, not just being on the floor but, and, and not just having a restaurant, but actually doing a lot of community outreach and, and finding other ways to connect with with other things. So totally. it sounds like you had an awesome gig there. So what kind of made you decide you were going to open Ardesia and go it on your own? Yeah, well, I will say that's, it was a total dream job. I, I loved and that, you know, in contrast to sort of what I was leaving behind, it was the kind of job where no two days were the same. The pace was, was really fast paced. Uh, we'd have an idea and we'd be able to just go ahead and execute it. Um, so I loved that. I loved all the different types of people I was able to interact with. I'm also a French speaker, so I love getting to practice my okay French uh, from time to time. But, you know, there was there is a sense, sort of, Eric Pair is a little different than some of the other chefs like Danielle Blood or Jean-Georges who, who are real expansionists and Chef Repair is really focused on Le Bernardin and nurturing it. And, and he you know, has just created a, a lifestyle that's more New York based. And so there, as time went on, then some of the responsibilities and things I did started to repeat. And then it started to feel a little, you know, not as fresh. And so I knew there weren't going to be, you know, this was going to be the job and it would sort of plateau at a certain point. Yeah. And for me, the reason I went there and changed my whole life was because I wanted, you know, something super dynamic. And so, and I had always kind of had this little quiet desire to have my own place uh, in, in the back of my mind. And then it just sort of... I think we all have that. You were brave. Yeah. <laughs> but it started gelling and the the passion for wine was something that developed over the years there. Um, you know, I studied sort of on my own, tried to absorb as much as I could on site, even though that wasn't obviously my primary function. Uh, and then it just slowly came together and then it just felt like the right moment to make the jump. And one thing I will say that's something I've learned from Chef Repair is just he's such a nurturer of people's passions and talents. And he 100% supported my my uh, dreams, even though that meant I would be leaving <laughs> his organization. So I think that's something that's really stuck with me as well, that it's like, you know, give the people the support you're going to get the most out of them while they're with you. Um, and then that relationship just is, is lifelong. So that was a really beautiful aspect. It's so, it's so amazing the difference that having a mentor like that, that you trust and who trusts you at that you know, point in your life and in your career, the difference that can make in terms of your self-confidence and, you know, and your courage and your willing to kind of, you know, right. see your right. dreams and think, yeah, I can probably do that. So. I want to talk about Ardesia now because I'm obsessed. Um, <laughs> and the next time I'm in New York, I'm definitely coming to see you. But 
I'm I'm curious about the name first of all because I know it means slate, um, which is described as I'm quoting from from my research, a natural and mysterious material with a minimalist color and structure, a dark gray material that can be split into thin layers. So I want to know what did this? How did this appeal to you? Where did you come up with Ardesians? Very cool name. Well, I love that definition. I've actually never read that specific definition. I love that. Uh, but no lie, it's three definitions crammed together. But I liked the wording. Oh, <laughs> I'm 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 going to steal that uh, <laughs> for my own edification. Um, I you know it was it, we actually originally had thought about naming it Slate. We liked the idea of blank slate and that we could sort of have a canvas to that would allow us to evolve over the years. Um, and then actually the name slate was taken already by a billiards hall that I think is still open in New York City, which I think ended up being a blessing in disguise because I think, you know, then we sort of just started looking for names that we really liked the sound of. And then we researched slate in other languages and in French and in other languages, it's, it's just to like it's ardoise and in, in French and it sounds French. We wanted something that didn't have any connotation so that there wasn't an expectation of, oh, this is a French wine bar or an Italian wine bar. Because Ardesia, even though it's Italian, to me it didn't sound expressly Italian. Cause that wasn't going to be our vibe and, and we wanted something that we could really allow us to play and build and evolve and something really neutral in a sense, but beautiful. And we just landed on Ardesia. It took a long time. <laughs> Naming things is really hard. Uh, that was probably the least fun aspect <laughs> of, of building the place. But yeah, once we kind of landed on it, we fell in love with it and um, yeah, haven't looked back. And then we kind of incorporated it into the design. So we have a monumental chalk wall where we write all the wines and some of the food and then the floors are slate. So it's a little bit of a design element that we put in place as well. I saw all of that in my, in my stocking, um, which, which really impressed me because obviously it's not just a name for you. You've incorporated it, as you said, in the design and kind of in the ethos of what you're doing there. I spent several years living very near a slate quarry in the Northwest of England. So it, it really appeals to me. And I, I love the idea that you've created this name which kind of was, you know, a difficult delivery <laughs> to get there. But then it's not just a name. You're not just rubber stamping it. It's really become part of who you are. And I really appreciate that. And while you've been there, you've gained this incredible reputation for championing these wines that are not on all the usual lists, as I said before, um, especially wines from female-led wineries, which is a passion of mine, and wine from unknown places. I live in a country where a lot of our best wines, uh, not many people know about, so I like it when people are doing that. And wines that are using unusual techniques. So what got you interested in focusing on these kind of, as you called them, underappreciated and, and lesser known kind of wines? What drives your choices? Where do you go hunting for these wines? Well, I think it kind of all works together, right? So we had this place that we wanted to have kind of a blank canvas and then I think it really ties in with the fact that I didn't come up as a traditional floor psalm and I've kind of brought just my curiosity to the table. And so, it, you know, a lot of these choices and selections are driven by things that I just personally find interesting. I also think, you know, you see what is the point of having the same thing on every list? Because then you can, what, what is the point of coming to us? So I just felt like, when people come to us, we should 
you know, we, we, we don't want people to feel intimidated. So we always have things that are familiar as well and recognizable. And, you know, for the person who just kind of wants to pop down and have a cold, crisp glass of Sauvignon Blanc, that's, we've got you covered. But then I just have a, had a sense, especially over the years, more and more that pe- I think the, the larger wine drinking community is just more and more curious and more and more open. Uh, we opened in 09 and from 09 to now, it's definitely been a sea change in terms of, I think, openness to lesser known regions and certainly a greater interest in thinking about the, you know, where the wine is coming from, who's behind the wine. You know, when we do highlight a, a special producer, I, I just see the excitement, you know, and it's, oh, and by the way, it's a female producer or, you know, we've been pouring the wines of Aslina, who's uh, South Africa's first. Oh, I love, I love her. Yes. I mean, just a wonderful person. And it's just like, it's just a joy to get to share those stories. Because I think the average wine consumer, if they're walking into their neighborhood shop, that, you know, they're, they're maybe going to go for something familiar when they come to us. This is where they can kind of play uh, and discover something new. And so in terms of sourcing, it's, it's a mixture. It's, can be travel. It's, it's a lot, you know, just we've developed such a wonderful core of wine vendors that we work with. And, you know, they kind of have, it's almost like I have one of them who says, oh, this, I have a really Ardesia wine for you. So, so then, you know, I think we've almost gotten them to understand what we're looking for. And so we're, we, we can be really lucky that sometimes it, it's brought to us in a sense. But yeah, and then through a combination of reading and just even just tasting things at other places. And it's a combination of all those things and then kind of bringing it together in a cohesive fashion. Because I always say, we don't want things on the list that are unusual just for the sake of being unusual. You know, like they, they need to be delicious. They need to be well made, you know. And then again, really looking now even beyond that and, and what are the practices of the vineyard what you know what's going on behind the scenes i think just everyone has gotten more interested in the, in the total picture and it, and it can be hard these are far-flung places so it's it's really relying on research and, and talking to our vendors and, and and a mixture of things but it's bottom line is it's it's really about curiosity and discovery are you enjoying this podcast Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local foods, and taking in the scenery. It sounds it sounds like a fantastic approach and one that I really, really, really like because you've clearly created a space where people feel comfortable asking questions, trying something new. They're not going to get judged if they don't know what it is. And I think a lot of that comes down to communication, you know, not not using our very old-fashioned kind of outdated wine language. And, and wine regions, as you said, you know, why have the same thing as everyone else when the world is becoming more aware of wines from other places, both domestically and, and outside of the U.S.? So I'm just wondering how you communicate all this, you know, great stuff that you've learned, you know, like... Nikki Baella's wine at, as a, at Aslina and things. How are you communicating these wines that a lot of your customers probably haven't been exposed to? Is that written in your wine list or is your staff uber trained and they can talk about this without using words like terroir and things like that, that, that put people off? How are you getting that out? Well, I think that's key actually. And because I was thinking about, you know, how do we create 
a welcoming environment and one that's not intimidating. And I think language is a big part of it. You know, kind trying to avoid showing off with <laughs> big sommelier words. And, you know, one thing I always ask the staff is to never correct someone if they're mispronouncing something. Uh, I, it's just not necessary. And I think it makes people feel uh, not good about themselves. Uh, so, we, you know, we try to do that. And then, you know, always pouring little tastes if people are unsure. I mean, I think that is just the simplest and the best way to to gauge. And then it creates this connection uh, as well. Because then, you know, it starts, it starts a conversation. That's so true. In an ice cream shop, you a little taste if you don't know what it is. You don't have to commit to the entire cone. So, exactly. But most, most wine bars and, and restaurants will not do that. So I think that's a really generous um, and open approach to get people, you know, kind of reeled in to some new wines and feeling able to taste without committing to a bottle or even a whole glass. I, I love that ice cream shop analogy. It's perfect because it's like, wh- is there anything worse than not tasting a flavor, getting it and not liking it and, ha- and having to eat the whole thing or not? You know, it's I just you can see it in people's eyes when they don't love something uh, that they're drinking. And and I, I don't like that. I don't want that. I don't want someone to sit there and a not be satisfied and B be spending, you know, their, their good money on something. So it is definitely an investment because it is, that's a challenge. You know, the language is a challenge. The sometimes what a guest will say doesn't match, you know, the one good example is we, we find a lot of people asking for full bodied Pinot Noirs and maybe there are some, you know, California that have something other than Pinot in them. And, and, but, but it, then we have to parse. Is it the light-bodied wine you're looking for or the fuller? And then literally the best way is to just plop something in front of them and see how they react. But, you know, there's really nothing better than when you pour a taste and someone's like eyes light up and, and they're just, they've discovered something and they're happy about it. Um, so I think it's, yes, it's certainly an investment and it's not like every single person who walks in tastes. It's also based on our, you know, if we're super busy and obviously when we're less busy, it's easier to engage like that. But I think it's really worth the investment to kind of create that connection with the guests and, and to make sure that what they're having is something they're really excited about. Absolutely. I mean, part of why I still continue to teach freshman university students on their semester abroad is exactly that. I mean, they, they fit with your philosophy. They are a blank canvas, a blank slate, if you will. They, they're pretty much unused to wine in the US. If they come from America, they aren't old enough to drink wine. And it's really, it's really amazing to see that light bulb moment where someone has a sip of something in their mouth that just blows them away and and really seduces them into the whole wine world. I I love those moments. So it's nice to know that you're making that happen in a way that is realistic, you know, instead of just saying, well, here's the list, here's the notes. And, you know, you can sort of spin the wheel and hopefully you're going to get a bottle you like that that connection of well here let me give you something that i like and you taste it tell me what you think i think that's it's very personal as well um instructive but personal yeah we have a few in terms of like how we actually communicate it too we try to put what we call call outs on the menu it's not notes under every wine and it's not a key for every single wine but it's when there's something really remarkable we like to kind of quote unquote call it out so kind of, you know, on those days when we don't have as much time to engage, then at least the guests can see something. Um, and we're actually about to relaunch our 
by the bottle list with, you know, sort of expanded, you know, it's an expanded interaction like that. Um, Cause I think it, it's, we don't want it to be so flat. We want it to have a little bit of life. And like I said, not every single guest you're going to be able to take 10 minutes and taste through four wines. So it's like, how do we fill those, fill that gap when we, when we can't have that in depth of an interaction. So that's, that's one way we want to do it sort of by having light information uh, but not overwhelming on on the page. That's such a good idea. It's a, and it's appealing. You know, just a couple of lines is all you need, not not a paragraph. So, uh, and you know, if it's your night out. You don't want to sit down and, and read a you know wine spectator review. So, no, that's a, it's a really great approach. And I think you know what you are doing is exactly what you set out to do. You know, creating a really fun and informal, inclusive environment where people don't feel intimidated and they do feel wanted. Um, and that they can try things. I think that's that's amazing. Um, my 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 next point I want to raise is another amazing thing that Ardesia did or you did with Ardesia um, during the pandemic. You only closed for forty eight hours, which is incredible. Um, uh, my brother owns a restaurant in Florida. I know how absolutely difficult that pivot was, but you whipped up ways to to run business and and keep your employees working and. It's not easy. I mean, that was it was a hell of a of a mountain to climb. What did you do? How did you stay open? Um, and you must hopefully have now an undyingly loyal staff. I'm hoping. Well, it is interesting because I do think it it did kind of transform everything for everyone. And I think for us, we just it was just like one foot in front of the other. And so w- the real turning point was when in in New York State they the government quickly moved to allow us to deliver alcohol, which prior to the pandemic under the liquor license we hold, you're not allowed to do that. So, I mean, we were all, we were cryovacking things and throwing food out and free, you know, giving food away. And we thought we were done. And then that came into play. So then two days later, we're like, all right, we're a wine shop now. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, just fast thinking because it was overwhelming. So, you know, don't don't be too humble. That was the ability to think fast in a really tough moment. Yeah, and act. And I, and I have to give credit to, it was, so my manager, Jordan, and then we had two chefs in the kitchen who we were able to, all of us stayed on, uh, not one sort of gap in employment. Unfortunately, the rest of the staff we did have to furlough, uh, but we stayed in touch. We did a fundraiser, like we kind of did everything we could to support and, and we kind of went person by person to see what kind of safety net they had. And um, luckily there were a lot of safety nets for everyone. But for example, one of our chefs was about to have a baby. Uh, his wife was having a baby that April. And so we paid him to stay home because it was, as I'm sure you know, and as it was in Italy, it was just wild. Like it was just so crazy here and so unknown. And Absolutely. I don't think any of us will ever forget. No, it's so, it's so visceral even just talking about it. But I think the, the thing is with Jordan and I working side by side, we were able to be incredibly nimble. And because we're so small, we didn't have any layers. So we as things started opening, then we decided to do a little pop-up. Uh, uh, we have a, we were very, very fortunate that we have a patio space. So, you know, we just kind of kept building. And so then a couple days later, we <laughs> opened our pop-up. And then as each, you know, restriction lifted or things changed one way or the other, we would just adapt. And, uh, you know, but then the flip side of it is 
we were really in a in a neighborhood and so there were there were a lot of people still here and it really worked together they were looking for support they were looking for outlets there were people we would you know in the early days i remember delivering for someone's anniversary a a, a, cheese, a kit of cheese and wine and just getting the note saying like thank you so much for doing this and then we have a lot of friends in the in the medical profession we're right down the street from mount sinai a lot of those folks live within blocks of us so we would deliver care packages to them and just you know kind of just kept rolling with it uh, until <laughs> until things really fully opened. But it was, as I'm sure you know from your brother, just such a challenge to keep having to adapt, you know, never, never settling down into a routine because everything changed every few weeks. And then obviously then things kind of rolled back when we had surges. So yeah, I think the key was just being like nimble, being fast, listening to what the community wanted and then, you know, obviously trying to keep everyone safe. And I always joke that Jordan, my manager and I, we, <laughs> we didn't come within 10 feet of one another for like six weeks. It was just such a bizarre time. We, you know, walk in the door separately, had our separate work areas. It was, it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, completely, completely. And I think, again, I think you're being humble with sort of underestimating the the amount of empathy and care that you were able to demonstrate because, you know, keeping your business going is one thing, but, you know, keeping an eye on your employees and keeping an eye on your neighborhood and responding and reacting to, you know, where you see needs is, you know, not something that we talk a lot about in our industry. We're always, you know, talking about sales and things like that. And that, that human empathy and ability to take what you do well at Ardesia and, you know, transform it into something that was really helpful and responsive to your staff and to your neighborhood is, is pretty huge. I mean, I think you, you picked up more even than you admit to from Eric Ripper uh, with the whole philanthropy sort of thing. I mean, I, I know that you're doing a bunch of things outside of Ardesia too now that uh, hopefully knock on wood, the pandemic is is over, but you're paying back. You're you're doing charitable work with things like the Fizz is Female and City Harvest. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that because I know you you took your lead from Eric as you were learning about the industry, and this is clearly stuck with you. So what's going on with your your outreach? I mean, absolutely. I think that lesson that that I absorbed from from seeing his actions. I think that it, a restaurant isn't. An, or a bar, or whatever, a cafe. It's not like this little island that's isolated. It's part of the fabric of a community. And I think if the pandemic taught us nothing else, taught us many things, but that's really, that point was really driven home, you know, when we, because, you know, we were questioning, you know, no, nobody knew what was safe to do and should we be doing, should we even be operating? And then when we got that response from the community, it really drove that point home that, we aren't we aren't separate <laughs> we're part of the community um and i think then that is what drives my desire to be really engaged with the community so um you know we happen to be in a neighborhood where there is a huge presence of the arts um just on our our block alone there are four different theaters little you know off-broadway things um community theaters and so that's like that's been something we've long supported is you know when we get a request or 
or schools. We're surrounded by schools and a lot of our clientele are parents. And, you know, we, we kind of always want to be open, open to their needs and how we can support. And, you know, City Harvest is just an organization that's near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, their mission is, is food rescue, food insecurity, uh, teaching teaching in underserved communities about nutrition and it's just it's just such a wonderful wonderful organization and so over the years we've done various events and initiatives with them and, and they're someone I want to always continue to support and yeah and then the physis females are really fun initiative to raise money for breast cancer research that a friend of mine um, had started and we did a really fun kind of walk around tasting format and it's fun to be able to kind of use what we do to then, support events that can raise money because it just it's a win-win you know you draw people in they have a great experience and then they're kind of more inspired i think to to open their open their pocketbooks and wallets so yeah it's it's important absolutely absolutely and you know when when you can you know provide an event like that in a space that already feels pretty comfortable i think you encourage people to engage you clearly love your neighborhood so you're encouraging more people to love it as well, which is you know, pretty great. That's it, it's as I said, it's not something that always happens in our industry, and it's great to see it, you know, on on scales like this, where you're getting recognized for it, and you're carrying on sort of empathy first, and that's that's really it's inspiring, and it's a great role model. I think so. You've you've already had a busy couple of years, obviously. <laughs> Um, this year you were a keynote speaker at Women in Wine Leadership Symposium, which hopefully I'll be able to get to for the first time ever this year now that we don't have COVID anymore. And you got recognized, as I said, by wine enthusiasts for their future 40s. So I have got to ask you, what are your passions in the industry right now? What's coming up in the next year or so? You you said you hate slow results. What have you got planned? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. But I think, you know, a lot of people always ask, oh, are you going to open another? Are you going to do something else? And I do think, you know, while we don't have specific plans, we would love to expand in some way. And that is certainly driven by the type of people who are part of Ardesia at this point in time. And, you know, I've called out Jordan, my, my manager, and I think it would be, we would love to do more together. Uh, and, and create more opportunities for for our staff, our longtime staff. But I think also just we're at a really, you know, the pandemic, things felt like a bit on pause. It was really like triage and just making it through. And we, I finally feel like we can go back a bit to nurturing mode. And so we just launched staff beverage education program, which we're calling the Artesia Staff Wine Club, uh, which was something we wanted to do for ages. We were kind of working on it just before the pandemic. And you know, it seems crazy to think that it's been on hold that long, but we finally launched. And so I'm really interested to continue nurturing the education platform, providing you know opportunities, even if, if someone isn't on the beverage team yet, you know, we, we make that, that program open to everyone. And, you know, I, and I really love the community outreach. So I think it's really, you know, of course, we would love to expand in some way. But in the meantime, I think it's really deepening, deepening the ties we've, we've sort of begun and, and continuing to nurture our involvement in the community and, and with developing our, our team. Those are really things that excite me. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. I'm sure that our listeners are you know, more than delighted to hear 
you know, such a great story of experiences, you know, in a new business. You, you haven't been going all that long, just over 10 years at Ardesia. And having had the pandemic in the middle of it, it's nice to hear someone so positive and really quite clearly, so truly and genuinely caring about your staff and your clients, um, not just lurching from crisis to crisis, but actually you know, sort of <laughs> right. taking, you know, taking the challenges and turning them into something that is inspiring um, and, and really attractive. So I'm, I'm so impressed and I'm really grateful for, for the conversation and such an uplifting one. So as I said, I will hopefully be back to New York soon and love to come and meet you in person. Please do. Please do. We would love to have you. Thank you so much for your time today, Mandy. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.